Well, we read stories of pastors who are clearly not who they claim to be. For instance, just a few days ago, the news broke about a retired pastor, quote-unquote pastor, who confessed to murdering an eight-year-old girl. Someone give me um, the clicker from up there. Do you mind? Thank you. Now that is an unimaginable scenario. Even more unimaginable is that the crime in question took place some... Yeah, thank you. The crime in question took place some 50 years ago. Which means he's been standing in front of people all that time apparently without any fear of God in his heart. And we hope that the full extent of the law would fall upon such a person. And I shudder to think what the Lord God Almighty would have in store for such a person in the life hereafter. Now he'd claim to be a believer, I'm sure. (laughs) Many people do. As James would say in James chapter 1, verse 26, this man's religion is worthless. Why? Because his faith does not, is not demonstrated by good works. Right? Now, he is not the only one that I could highlight. I'll highlight someone else from a few years ago. There are other religious leaders who are open to the fact that they do not know God. The news broke about 2016, I believe it was, that there is a pastor who is supposedly an atheist. Hmm. Came out. This pastor is a she, which is a whole other issue right there. But she presides over what identifies to be a Christian congregation, which is part of the United Church of Canada. That's the main, uh, main denomination that is up there. The story asks, can an atheist be a pastor? And then it notes, for the hundred-strong congregation at West Hill, the answer is an unabashed yes Stripped of God and the Bible, services here are light on religious doctrine and instead emphasize moral teachings. The service begins with a nod to the First Nations land on which the church stands and goes on to mention the human rights and Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Palestine. Global concern is coupled with community building, with members invited to share significant moments of their past week. Hmm. Hmm. That all sounds very, very nice. Did you hear how it began, though? Services began stripped of God and the Bible. This story is shocking for seemingly different reasons, right? 
But I'd say that there is an underlying component which links the two stories. Neither person who claimed to be a pastor honors God. One's just honest about it, the other is hypocritical about it. But they are both religious leaders who don't believe. Now we meet such people everywhere. Such people who do not believe. Including in this text. Here we see religious leaders who are gathered together. They are religious leaders under the name of Yahweh. Under the name of the Lord Most High. And they are gathered together in judgment over Jesus whom the Father has sent to them. They are in judgment because the officers that they sent to arrest Jesus because they are rejecting his message come back empty handed. Were the rulers? Well, that would include the priestly class. Those are the Sadducees, the, the high priests. And gathered together with these rulers would be the Pharisees, who are the religious elite of the day, probably many of whom in each group who are part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the day. And together they comprise the conspiracy to condemn Jesus without a trial, which is, of course, contrary to their professed faith. Well, this account gives us some insight into how unbelieving religious leaders operate as we watch them betray our Lord together. And this is what we see. We see that those who reject Christ reject truth. Those who reject Christ reject truth. Those who reject Christ also embrace ego. <coughs> we'll see that very clearly in this passage. And we'll see that those who reject Christ reject reason. They reject reason. Well, let's consider the first of those. Those who reject Christ reject truth. Let's go back to verse 45 and, and reconsider this. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? <laughs> well, who are these folks? Well, these officers who come, actually come back from verse 32. You might remember the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering that they thought that he might be the Christ, that Jesus might be the Christ. And so the Pharisees heard that the crowd was muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Well, now the officers come back, and again they come back empty-handed. Who are the officers? Well, the term here can be translated attendants. They were the temple attendants or servants. They were trained. They were likely scribes. They were Levites. They were temple servants, and they were serving in an official capacity. Now, the authority that they wielded was primarily ministerial. They, they, they were ministers. 
And yet they obviously had authority which crossed into the penal realm. Uh, they, they were a police force of sorts to take care of things if something were to get, get, get out of hand inside of the temple. And of course, there's nothing wrong with having a security team of sorts or having, having folks who would serve in that capacity. The question is, how are they used? Are they used righteously? Now, as an aside, uh, and with that thought in mind, we've noted this before, but civil authorities must consider whether their legislation and the execution of the laws on the books are pleasing to God. Romans 13 describes all of those who are in authority, in positions of authority, as God's servants and ministers. And so it's not just those who would serve in the temple. It's not just those who are Levites, for instance, who would be considered God's servants. It is every person who would have a position of authority, whether it be a police officer, a, a sheriff's deputy, uh, or someone else who has, uh, who has the force of the sword, as Scripture would describe it. And today, even today, if you look at various countries, offices within the government are still called ministries, right? In the ministry of justice, and, and you have the different kinds of ministries. We would do well to think of authority in terms of a ministry under God because all authority is delegated by God. And so we are all people under authority, not just to an, a higher person, but to a higher God. And so all of us who are under authority must think in this way. And in this case, these officers are using the knowledge that they have been given in Moses to evaluate Jesus's words for themselves before they carry out their arrest of him. And that is a righteous means of doing things as those in authority. That is exactly how they should operate. And in doing this, they actually show more concern for the truth than the, than the officials, the rulers who sent them, right? Now, of course, servants, civil or religious, must answer if they do choose to say, okay, I can't follow that order, and they choose to violate that order. And so, in verse 45, we read that they came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who then asked them, why did you not bring him? They have to be ready to answer that kind of question. And this kind of questioning, in theory, provides a balance to the law because if you have officers who are not fulfilling their duty, then those who are over them have a responsibility to admonish them, to, to censure them, to maybe even fire them if, if need be. The question is, are these religious leaders here honoring God? Well, no, they're not. They're not honoring God with how they operate. So we see the officers thinking through perhaps what, how they might answer the question, and this is how they answer it. They say, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Legacy Standard Bible, if you have an LSB, uh, the, the, uh, which is kind of a much better update to the, to the New American Standard, which I'm reading from here, it has a cleaner translation here, and it says this. Never has a man spoken like this. Never has a man spoken like this. 
And so this is what they're, what they're saying. And of course, Jesus did have a good ability as a teacher. We understand that he was a good teacher. We could consider a lot of different places, like for instance, uh, toward the beginning of his ministry, we read, he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. So he obviously was a good teacher. But there's more to it than just his, say, rhetorical ability, his oratory skills. Or, this, is, this is him speaking with authority that captures the people's attention. Uh, Matthew 7, 28 and 29, we read this. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And so he spoke with authority. This wasn't just his, his, his ability to communicate ideas. This was the way in which he communicated ideas. He, he had authority. There, there was something, uh, there, there was a certain weight to his words, a certain gravitas, if you will. Mark one twenty seven shows how far that authority went. They were all amazed. So they debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. If, if he is teaching in such a way that demons are getting out of people, let me tell you, he is teaching with authority. And that is a unique authority. That's not an authority that just anyone had. And this terrified the rulers. And so as Mark 11, uh, 28 says, the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him. You see that? They were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. This is ultimately why they sent the officers after Jesus. Because they were terrified of him. And because they didn't want his truth to continue to be spoken. They wanted to shut him down. Now, to be clear, the officers, trained as they were, would not have avoided arresting Jesus simply because he spoke with self-assurance. Self-assurance is not proof of truth. There are a lot of self-assured people out there who don't know what they're talking about, right? Amen. And there are some of us who don't communicate as well who might be teaching the truth. And so that's not the reason they didn't arrest him. Rather, these men were trained, again, as Levites. They understood the truth, and they saw that Jesus was not the revolutionary that the rulers were painting him to be. He was not the deceiver that the Pharisees were accusing him of being. He spoke truth. Now, 
They didn't just say, hey, you guys are wrong. He's out there speaking truth. They, they, they address the rulers and the Pharisees respectfully. And they just simply say, never has a man spoken in the way that this man speaks. It's not like they're just like over there like, oh, wow, he just sounded really smart. I don't know. I didn't arrest him. No, they understand that there's something to his words that are true. These are men who know Moses. These are men who know the rabbinical tradition and these are men who are saying, he, he's not doing anything worthy of being arrested. So how do the Pharisees respond? Well, they answered them in verse 27, or verse 47, excuse me. You have not also been led astray, have you? Now, that's one way of translating it. And I will say that this, uh, this particular verse, it's, it's not exactly clear. This is a, this is a possible translation. Uh, it expects a negative response if it's translated this way. Usually when you have a translation where you repeat it, you have not also been led astray, comma, have you? Well, that's meant to emphasize the fact that they don't believe that they've been led astray. However, the context seems to indicate that they do think that they may have been led astray. Uh, and so there are other possible translations. I think if you have a King James, New King James, you have it translated in such a way that there is a possibility that the uh, officers have also been led astray. Again, the Legacy Standard Bible translates it that way. Have you also been led astray? And so there, there is that question there, and I think that's a faithful rendering. Now, either way, uh, and we, we could argue the Greek later on, that's, that's, that's not so much a point, but uh, if, if we are to point something else out from the Greek, they, they use an emphatic pronoun for them. It's almost as if they were saying, wait a minute, you too? You too? There, there, there's a there's an implicit shock here. See, the rulers they're they're unwilling to seriously consider whether they have misread the situation. That that would be the reasonable thing to do if they were considered if they were considerate of truth. If they wanted to get to the truth, they would do that. They would say, "Well, you know, we did send these officers. Okay, well, maybe let's give them another hearing." And that's. Almost what Nicodemus recommends here in a few verses. But they're not concerned about truth. They've already condemned Jesus in their mind. And so whatever Jesus is saying is false. If Jesus says the sky is blue, the sky isn't blue. <laughs> it's something else. Because he's wrong. So these temple officials come back with almost a veiled request to, to re-examine the teaching of Jesus. But these leaders, these religious leaders, mind you, religious leaders have already prejudged Jesus. They've already made their determination. They're not concerned about religious truth. They're concerned about power. They're concerned about position. And they want him put in his place. These officers didn't do what they told him to do. So now they're putting these officers in their place. And soon you'll see they're putting everyone in their place. Why? Because ultimately it's about pride. It's not about their religion. It's about their pride. And that brings us to the next point here. Those who reject Jesus embrace ego. Those who embrace 
or reject Jesus, embrace ego. Verses 48 and 49, we read there, No one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. The leaders are asking a rhetorical question here, and they expect a negative response, and that is translated that way. That's the way it should be translated. They are speaking with the assumption that there's not a single leader who agrees with Jesus. And they say this to clearly shame the officers for not, in their mind, doing their job. As one commentary notes, it's almost as if we're reading, he has none on his side, they say, but low and ignorant men. The rulers and every person of distinction are opposed to him. And so it's, so, so it's like, you officers, you're siding with the ignorant. With the hoi polloi, the, the, the people. And they're putting the officers in their place and putting them down for even considering whether the claims of Jesus have reliability. I mean, after all, supposedly no one of importance believes these claims. Of course, there are people who would say the same thing today. Well, no scientist believes in God. And you people meet in church every Sunday. No, no, one, no one who has degrees after their name believes in God. And of course, we know that's false, right? <laughs> there are lots of people who are well-educated and who are a lot more intelligent than I am who believe in God. But that, that's a, that, that is a a claim that gets thrown out there. Now, now before we go any further down that rabbit trail, I do want to back up for just a moment and, and, and note for a fact that religious leaders should lead. I mean, on the surface, there is something to be said about this. Now, I, now I'm not talking about the logical fallacy of appeal to authority. That, that is... That is something else but there is a sense in which religious leaders uh, should have the knowledge and the wherewithal to evaluate the claims of some religious upstart like Jesus here and be able to say whether his claims are true or false there should be some some, some ability some capacity there among religious leaders that's why we have religious leaders God sometimes works through such people of authority to prevent his people from being led astray because there are false prophets out there there are charlatans out there and there are people who would lead us astray and if you don't believe me just turn on the tv turn on tvn turn on a lot of these other networks out there and you'll see these individuals with the, with a phone number at the bottom of the screen where you can call and put in your credit card right but it's true in the church that God uses religious leaders to try to, uh, or, or to help the church grow. For instance, Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13, we read this. 
and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Now we would say these are all religious leaders, right? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's what religious leaders are supposed to do. They're supposed to help instruct the church. They're supposed to help guide the congregation of God's people. Which is why one of the qualifications that God gives for an elder slash pastor, an elder pastor, overseer, these are all the same position in the the Bible. An elder slash pastor is qualified if he is someone who is holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. Why? So that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. One of the jobs of a pastor is to refute false doctrine. Now, pastors should not be pugnacious. They shouldn't be quick to, to, to a fight. Uh, there is a sinful part of us that, that enjoys that sometimes. Pastors should not enjoy conflict. But, there, but neither should a pastor fail to rise to the occasion when it is needed. And if there's false doctrine, a pastor has to address it. And he has to nip it in the bud. That is what God calls religious leaders to do. And it is such a high task that we are told in James 3.1 that teachers are held to a stricter judgment. Which is why we're warned, don't be many teachers. Well, here we have some religious leaders. And they're quick to judgment. They're quick to condemn Jesus. They are not leading in the way that God would have them to lead. They are rejecting the truth of God. They are not bowing to God's word. Their their question does not come from a careful place of fair analysis. Which Nicodemus is about to point out. They have no grace. They have no real reason for believing what they believe. They'll give a weak reason, but we'll see in a moment that that's not a true reason. As another commentary notes here, their question reveals their pride. Their question reveals their pride. They thought they were too educated to be taken in by a deceiver. Oh boy, don't ever think that. Don't ever think that. There's a deception out there for all of us. 
But they, they exalt themselves and their superior knowledge in asking such a question. Has anyone who has believed in him? Oh, you, know, you can imagine them with their eyes half closed, their heads cocked back. Oh, anyone of us believe that? No. They're full of themselves. Ironically, when they talk about any of the rulers, that's the same word that John used back in chapter 3, verse 1. When he talked about Nicodemus, one of the rulers who came to Jesus. There, there is an irony here that the Apostle John is bringing out. And in fact, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and perhaps even others, are secret believers at this very moment. Why aren't they speaking up then? Well, John 12.42 says that they feared being put out of the synagogue. So they haven't been vocal just yet. But here with these religious leaders who are speaking, we, we see their arrogance, and the arrogant are often ignorant. And that doesn't stop them from engaging in elitism. And that is a problem with religious leaders. Those who would prefer to be called rabbi, teacher. They like the long greetings in the marketplace, right? Those who, I would even say, you know, like, like being called pastor and reverend. If someone calls me reverend, I'm not going to shame you for it. That's fine. But I don't prefer that term. Because I am not one to be revered. That's what the term means. I know it's a cultural thing. Sometimes people will call people that, but I, I, I don't like being called that. I don't like that term. There's a God's to be revered. Amen. There are people who like that a little bit too much. <laughs> the most right Dr. Reverend so-and-so, you know, whatever. They, they, they add titles to their names. These are, these are individuals who are arrogant. And, and we can see their elitism and how they talk about the crowd in verse 29, or verse 49. Sorry, I don't know why I keep trying to change the verses on you. Verse 49, they, they talk about the crowd in this way. This, this crowd, which does not know the law, I mean, think about this. They, they look down on the people. They look down on the people. As one commentary notes here, the Pharisees had a scorn for the Amharits, the people of the earth. And as the commentator points out, it's like our term clodhoppers. Actually, I don't know if many people use that term that much anymore. <laughs> it's an older commentary. But we, we see this in rabbinic literature. And in fact, I do have a quote from a rabbi up here. This rabbi said that even if someone learned the scripture, even if someone learned the scripture and the Mishnah, you say, what is that? That's a large corpus of Jewish tradition. Even if someone learned the, the Scripture and the Mishnah, 
but has not served as a student of the learned. <laughs> he is one of the Amharats, the, the people of the land. If he has learned the scripture, but not the Mishnah. So this is someone who's like one level lower, right? He's learned the scripture, but not the Mishnah. He is an uneducated man. Oh. If he has learned neither the scripture nor the Mishnah, hmm, the scripture says of him, I sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of men and the seed of cattle. In other words, he is indistinguishable from an animal. Wow. So, so kind of working our way back up the ladder, even if you knew it all, you knew the scripture, you knew the Mishnah, if you, if you, had, not even, if you had not served, you're still just one of the people of the land. You're not one of the learned. I remember there was a debate a while ago. There's uh, some Christ there are a few Christians who were who are arguing over critical race theory, and uh, this one Christian who had some clout uh, was saying that we should not listen to this other Christian who. Uh, had studied and had had some degrees behind his name, but he said this this other guy who, who's putting down critical race theory, he doesn't have a PhD, y'all. He doesn't have a PhD. I don't think we should be listening to someone who doesn't have a PhD. And of course, we can all think of words that we can supply in what PhD actually stands for. <laughs> Right? You don't have to know, have a PhD to know the truth. But this one Christian was, was putting him down. That's another logical fallacy of, of, uh, of attacking the man, right? The ad hominem, attacking the man. Well, he doesn't have a PhD, so he's not one of the people. He's not, he's not one of the learned. So people still have this kind of attitude today. But here we see these religious leaders not only exalting themselves above the people, which is already an error. It doesn't matter how, how solid someone's teachings seem to be. If they think they are above everyone else, they are in error. But they go a step further. And they call this people accursed. Now it may be just to give them the benefit of the doubt because we do want to do that we want to be honest they, they, they may have had in mind a verse like Deuteronomy 27-26 which does say cursed is he who does not condemn or I'm sorry cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. If a person is not doing the word of God, if a person is not holding to the word of God, then that person does have a curse upon him, according to the law. 
But these leaders are speaking as though all the people are damned to hell. They're accursed. All the people are damned to hell. Oh, except for themselves, of course, the, the, the enlightened, learned teachers. Wow. What kind of hubris do you have to have to hold that kind of opinion? These are the supposed shepherds of Israel. They are cursing their own flock. And we see that they are full of self-importance throughout these verses. As the Reformation Study Bible notes here, the strong prejudice of the chief priests and Pharisees is apparent in their condemnation of the temple guards, of the crowd, and even of Nicodemus, one of their number. They're willing to condemn everyone except themselves. What other word do we have for that than ego? Actually, we have lots of different words. Pride, right? Arrogance. They are full of themselves. They're self-righteous. And this is all a sure sign that ego is driving their opinions, not truth or reason. They've rejected those, so, so they embrace ego. They reject truth. They reject reason. We haven't really talked much about reason, so we'll turn there next for a final point. Verses 50 through 52. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And they answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. See, their condemnations were apparently too much for Nicodemus, and now he, he is willing to run the risk of being discovered as a follower of Jesus. He had already been examining the Lord's claims, and he knows for certain that someone who, who believes in Jesus is not someone who just simply doesn't know the law and someone who is, who, who, who is damned. He was with the officers in spirit. Never has a man spoken in the way that this man speaks. He may have already been a believer at this point, which is why, Nick, why John the Baptist points out the irony here that he is one of their number and he believes even though they said previously that no one of their number believes. But Nicodemus realizes that he holds a tenuous position. Perhaps uh, he sees the dogged hatred of his peers. He understands that they are about to be, that they are willing to put people out of the synagogues. Uh, and so instead of revealing himself at this moment, he chooses to highlight a procedural point. And really, there's, this is a reasonable point. In verse 51, he says, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Now, this is not a direct quotation from any one uh, Old Testament text. I'll just run down a few verses which do highlight this in the law. For instance, Exodus 23.1, we read there, you shall not bear a false report. You do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. 
In Leviticus 19, verses 15 and 16, we read this. You shall not do injustice in judgment. This is injustice. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to be or you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 17:6 says this. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. What is being achieved here? Some sense of fairness. There has to be multiple witnesses if we're going to carry out a capital punishment. Not only a capital punishment, but Deuteronomy 19, Deuteronomy 19.15 says this, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. This is probably all in Nicodemus's mind. Nicodemus also might be thinking of other places, like in the wisdom literature, Proverbs 18.13. It says that, that there is wisdom in hearing both sides of an issue before making a judgment. And then, of course, being a rabbi in the rabbinical tradition, he may have thought of Rabbi Eliezer ben Pedath, who says in the Midrash... In Exodus, Rabbah, unless a mortal hears the pleas that a man can put forward, he is not able to give a judgment. Because we are all mortals, aren't we? And mortals, by our mortality, we are limited. We have limited number of a limited number of experiences, a limited perspective, and so we need to hear from multiple witnesses to be able to determine whether a matter is correct or not. And so Nicodemus is speaking with simple wisdom and simple reason here. It is neither right nor logical for the leaders to condemn Jesus without giving him a hearing. They cannot know the truth of his deeds until they hear him out. And perhaps... He's even holding on to hope that maybe if they hear Jesus, finally give him a fair hearing, maybe some of them will come to believe. Yet we see that they reject even reason here. And they ask him, you're not also from Galilee, are you? <laughs> they, 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 <laughs> this is how they respond to that, with mockery. They don't think he's really from Galilee, of course, but they they they, they think that this that this statement, this call for reason, is just too much. It's beyond the pale. You know, sometimes when we share the gospel, unbelievers do desire to debate us. And I would say, if a person is 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 debating you, but they seem to be listening to the answers that you're giving debate with them. 
Some people really appreciate that. Even if they, even if they end up rejecting the truth or at, at the end of the conversation or saying, you know, I'm still not a believer, they may thank you for that. And I've had people thank me, and I've heard of people thanking other people for the same thing. They, they appreciate someone willing to, to kind of clash swords with a little bit and to maybe get some answers that, that no one else is willing to give them. But there are some people who are so hostile to Jesus Christ that, that they'll debate, but they scoff at simple answers and, and reason, and, or not simple answers, but at simple reason, and, and, and they, they'll cut you off, and they'll cut you short, and they'll, you know, they just move on to the next thing, next thing. They're not listening to you. They're not interested in what you're having to say. And in that case, in that case I think we have a Matthew 7, 6 situation where you're casting your pearls before swine. You have to just say, you know what, God bless you. Have a great day. And you just move on to someone else. But even if someone casts off all reason, understand that they will probably still have some kind of a justification in their mind for why they say what they say. And in this case, they say, search. They're commanding Nicodemus, search. And see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. <laughs> well, actually, as one commentary notes, the prophets Jonah, Hosea, Nahum, and perhaps Elijah, Elisha, and Amos were from Galilee or close to it. Whoops. That's a glaring mistake for men who are so trained. In fact, it's such a bad mistake that some commentators think, well, maybe if we're just being fair to them, maybe they're using this more metaphorically and they're talking about Messiah in terms of being a prophet. And of course, there's some truth then if we say it that way, because the Messiah is supposed to be from Bethlehem, not Galilee, but the text never says that he would never go to Galilee. So this is this is a really weak really weak argument and this is assuming the best if, if, if we assume the best on what they are actually trying to argue either way the Pharisees are just not being reasonable and this is what we see with pastors and teachers today they move the goalposts they try to justify some false teaching that's in vogue with the world uh, today for instance recently I noticed a pastor on on uh, Twitter, which has been renamed for some reason. Um, a pastor there uh, tried to argue that God allows homosexuality. Why? Because it's present in the animal kingdom. Okay. When someone pointed out that animals also eat their own feces... <laughs> This pastor suddenly is shocked. He's like, why are we comparing human beings made in the image of God to animals? Well, I don't know. Why are we? <laughs> He's moving the goalposts. That's a man who has rejected all reason. He, he can't keep with a reason. He can't keep up with the reason because he doesn't hold to reason. He holds to sin. This is a false teacher who serves as an example of how rejecting truth leads to the loss of ability to reason. And he does think highly of himself, too. 
This is a pattern that we see with false teachers. They reject the truth, they embrace ego, and they reject reason. Now Nicodemus, on the other hand, we see that he appears again at the crucifixion in chapter 19. And that's interesting because he came to Jesus by night in chapter 3, when Jesus was the most popular. He doesn't want to be seen as a possible follower of Jesus, so he comes to Jesus by night. But then, at the Lord's lowest point from man's perspective, he, he comes openly and helps with the burial of Jesus. He becomes a true believer. He becomes a true faith. Now, we can't always know where a person is spiritually. But Matthew 7 gives us a clue. Jesus says, There you shall know them by their fruits. You shall know them by their fruits. If they are people, even if they're religious leaders who have their degrees behind their names, they get invited to the prayer breakfasts, they, they, they get mentioned by all the popular people, they get to sit at the cool kids' table, but they reject the truth of Christ on this point, on this point, on this point. And they seem to be full of themselves. And sometimes it's hard to tell. Anyone who speaks authoritatively, thus saith the Lord, can, can have an appearance of arrogance. And so, so we don't want to be quick to judgment. But, but it does appear that they like to promote themselves. And it appears that they don't seem to, to have a lot of reason. Well, at some point we got to say, this is not the Christian tree that, that's producing fruit here. This is the unchristian tree. They, even if they claim to be Christian, we can see that the fruit is coming from somewhere else. And perhaps you've seen that and you've struggled with that yourselves. Because you yourselves have been members of churches, of congregations, where there was a religious leader who seemed to be true, but then he proved himself to be false in some way. Maybe he confesses to some crime. Maybe an investigation uncovers something. And you wonder, what, what am I to do with this? Understand that you are not to put your faith in men. Or women, for that matter. Put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. He is the only one who will never let you down. He will stick closer to you than a brother. And His truth and His reason are the things that we should embrace. Don't get attracted to some cult of personality. Get attracted to Jesus Christ. He is the one we should be following. After all, He's the only true Savior. He's the only one who can deliver your battle-weary soul.